reason because, well, I'll just tell you, I needed it for me. I needed it for me to bring me back to what true Christmas is all about. How many of you have figured out by now that there's a lot of things that take place during the holiday season that kind of distract from the real message of Christmas? And so for me, Advent is just a way of, of bringing me back and, uh, and uh, realigning my focus onto the real reason for Christmas. And here in just a few moments after we receive the offering, we're going to do Advent a little bit different this year. We're going to have our children bring us the Advent readings, and, and I, I hope that you'll enjoy that. And, you know, uh, in the midst of trying to come back to the real meaning of Christmas, all you have to do is look in the eyes of a child and see the excitement that they have. And that's the same excitement that we ought to have about the real meaning of Christmas. Amen? So, ushers, if you would come, please. As we receive our offering this morning... Obviously, we understand that Christmas is a time of giving. God gave His very best. And um, that salvation that we celebrated this morning as we came around the table of communion, it did not come cheaply. It came at a great price. And uh, if God can give us His very best, I think we can give back to Him. Maybe not everything in terms of our finance, but everything in terms of our lives. Aren't you thankful for salvation this morning? And Lord Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you. As that song said, we surrender all to you, Jesus. And in obedience to your word, we give back that portion that you have blessed us with to fund your kingdom work here in this community. So, Lord, bless these tithes and offerings this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could get uh, my helpers to come up here this morning, uh, Jordy and Max, are you the two that are helping me this morning? What I'm going to have you guys do is I'm going to have you come down here and one of you on each side of me. Jordy, you want to come over here? And the reason for that is I'm going to hold the microphone for them. So I want, I want them to just share the reading for us this morning and uh, pay close attention to the words that they read. Do you know what your name means? Well, there was once a man, Isaiah, and his name meant God to the rescue. That might sound like a bit of a funny name to you, but it was just the right name for Isaiah because God had a special job for Isaiah. You see, Isaiah's job was to listen to God and then tell people what he heard. Now God let Isaiah know a secret. God was going to mend his broken world. He showed Isaiah his secret rescue plan, Operation No More Tears. This is the message God gave Isaiah Dear little flock, you are you're all wandering away from me like sheep in an open field. You've always been running away from me, and now you lost. You can't find your way back, but I can, can't stop loving you, so I will come to find you. I am sending you a shepherd to look after you and love you, to carry you 
home to meet you and stumbling around like people in a dark room. But into the darkness, a bright line will shine. It'll chase away all the shadows like sunshine. A little baby boy will be born, a royal son. His mommy will be a young girl who doesn't have a husband. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. He is one of King David's children's children, children, the Prince of Peace. Do you want to hold it or do you want me to? Yes, someone is going to come and rescue you, but he won't be who anyone expects. He will be a king, but he won't live in a palace, and he won't have lots of money. He will be poor, and he will be a servant. But this king will heal the whole world. He will be a hero. He will fight for his people and rescue them from their enemies. But he won't have big armies, and he won't fight with swords. He will make the blind see. He will make the lamb leap like deer. He will make everything the way it was always meant to be. But people, but people will hate him, and they won't listen to him. He will be like a lamb who will suffer and die. If it's the secret rescue plan we made from before the beginning of the world, it's the only way to get you back. But he won't stay dead. I will make him alive again. And one day when he comes back to rule forever, the mountains and trees will dance and sing for joy. The earth will shout out loud. His fame will fill the whole earth. As the waters cover the sea, everything sad will become untrue. Even death is going to die. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him. Watch for him. Wait for him. He will come. I promise. Poor Isaiah. He read God's letter over and over to God's people. But no one listened to him at all, ever. They didn't want to hear God's promise. They didn't believe it. Did it sound maybe too good to be true? A story that ends happily ever after. Well, it does sound like a fairy tale, doesn't it? And as anyone will quickly tell you, fairy tales aren't true, or are they? Thank you. Now, one of the things that we do in Advent is we light a candle each week to help us look forward to the coming of the Christ child. And so, Jordy and Max, I'm going to have you help me with this. Which one of you wants to light the candle? This one right here. You want to? Is that okay with you, Max? Okay, I'm going to hold on to it because I have to keep that pressed in. Just take my hand and let's light it. This is the candle of hope. Let's give these kids a big hand, shall we? Thank you. You can go back to your seat. The candle of hope. Aren't you glad for that hope? It's hard to believe that it's Christmas season again. By the way, our kids can be dismissed to go to Children's Church. Thank you for your help. When I say the Christmas season has begun, it's almost like saying the craziness has started. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the commercial craziness of the Christmas season. What sales are going on where and... How many Christmas cards do I need to send out? 
all the decorating of Christmas ornaments, Christmas lights. Leonard, if you'd flash that next slide up there, I saw this picture of Rocky the other day. Rocky seriously injured while trying to get a TV at Walmart. Now, it's a funny meme, but it serves to remind us how easy it is to lose perspective when it comes to this great season of the year. Uh, In the busyness of all that we think we have to do during this time of the year, I'm, uh, I'm praying and I'm hoping that celebrating Advent will recalibrate us, so to speak. Just kind of help us to hit the reset button in the midst of all the craziness and bring us back toward the true meaning of Christmas. This idea of recalibration, uh, what does it mean? Well, instruments that measure occasionally get off just a bit. I remember when I was on the farm and we would we would bring grain trucks in and weigh the grain, and, and that way we would know how much grain we were putting in the bins. And uh, we'd go down to this scale house, and they had this big scale. We'd drive the truck onto the scale, and, and uh, it would weigh, you know, 36,000 pounds or whatever. And then you come back and weigh it when it's empty, and then, then you subtract the difference, and that's how much grain you had. You divide that by 56 pounds for for corn and 60 pounds for wheat, and that told you how many bushels you had to sell. But I also remember times when you'd pull on those scales and the reading wasn't anywhere near what it should have been. And that told us that it was time for us to have somebody come in to recalibrate the scales, to set them back to where they weighed accurately once again. For example, if you have a bathroom scale, you probably notice that you have to recalibrate it once in a while back to zero so that it'll wake you correctly. Now, that's unless, of course, it's in your favor, in which case you may not want to recalibrate it in order to make yourself feel better, particularly during the Christmas season. But I hope you get the idea. That's what Advent should do for us. Recalibrate us back to the right priorities and the real reason for the season. It's time to remind us what Christmas is really about. To prepare ourselves, to get ready, not for decorations, not for Christmas shopping, but getting ourselves what I call spiritually prepared for the arrival of Christ. Now, I'm going to do something a bit unusual this morning. I'm going to give you a a couple of verses of scriptural text, and then I'm going to get to my real text, which you may or may not recognize. My first text is found in Romans chapter number 15. You have it on your smartphones or uh, on the YouVersion outline. Verse 12, the kids were reading to us about Isaiah, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. Now may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then if you turn over just one page in my Bible, you come to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And again, I want to share just a couple of verses with you from that passage. Paul said in verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus, that by him you were made rich in everything, in all speaking and all knowledge, as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then skipping to verse number 9, it says, God is faithful. By him you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, every week I stand behind this pulpit and do my very best to preach the Word of God with love, with faithfulness, and in, in doing so, there are times that I sometimes refer to authors who are well-known, well-respected, and who can offer us profound and brilliant theological ideas. Well, this morning I want to, I want to discuss a particular book by an author who prior to his death in 1991, sold more than 600 million copies of his 60 world-famous books that were translated into more than 34 languages. And I'm guessing that everyone here today, every man, woman, boy, and girl, has heard of his books. His work is so well-respected that he goes by the name and title Doctor. Or to be more specific... Dr. Seuss, I want to share with you something from one of his more well-known books, particularly at this time of year. It's entitled, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Um, This is in relation to this first Advent series message this morning on hope. Um, And for those of you who may not be familiar with this book or may not have seen the cartoon that's shown on TV nearly every Christmas season, let me just give you a little bit of background so you'll understand what I'm getting ready to read as my main text this morning for this message. The story's about a Grinch. The Grinch is, there he is, He's this hairy, pot-bellied, pear-shaped, snub-nosed, green-colored creature with this cat-like face and a very cynical personality. He's an awful person. The Grinch has spent the past 53 years living in seclusion in a cave near a cliff overlooking a small town called Whoville. Now, to be honest, to be, he's one of the meanest creatures that you're ever going to hear of. He's described in the book as being mean-tempered with a heart that's two sizes too small. He's described as being as cuddly as a cactus with termites in his smile and garlic in his soul. He especially hates Christmas. 
making particular note of how disturbing the various noises of Christmas time are to him, including the singing of those disgusting Christmas carols. Well, the Grinch finally comes to a place where he's unable to stand the holiday any longer, so he decides to destroy Christmas once and for all. And the bottom line is that he's mean through and through, and like a bad apple, he's completely rotten to the core. And in the story, the, the Grinch makes it very clear that he hates Christmas. And he hates those who celebrate it. So he devises this wicked plan to wipe out Christmas for the cheerful Whovillians in the village below. The creatures who live in this small, happy town of Whoville. So on Christmas Eve, are you enjoying this as much as I am? On Christmas Eve, the Grinch sneaks into every little house in the village of Whoville and he removes everything that has anything to do with Christmas. He steals the presents, he steals the food, he steals the stockings, he steals the decorations, he even steals all the Christmas trees. And as the Grinch is returning to his home at the break of dawn, he's absolutely pleased that he has ruined the Christmas holiday for everyone and that there will be no happy Whovillians this year. But when we reach the end of the story that I'm getting ready to read to you, we find that this is not how he hoped that it would be. And here's how the story reads. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming, it came, somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling, how could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And the minute his heart didn't feel quite so tight... He whizzed with his load through the bright morning light, and he brought back the toys and the food for the feast, and he himself, the Grinch, carved the roast beef. What a horrible person. In a stupid little story, we are reminded that we've missed the entire reason the season. You see, the Grinch realized that there was something sacred beneath all the wrapping, all the trimmings, that something bigger was the true meaning of Christmas. My goal in sharing that cute but meaningful story is to pose a question to those of us here this morning who are followers of Jesus Christ, and the question is this, what is the true meaning of Christmas? particularly when there seems to be so many different voices clamoring for your attention this holiday season. 
Well, if Advent is a time of spiritual preparation, we better know what we're preparing for. So today, in this first week of Advent, we remind ourselves of Christ's coming. But I want to take it a little bit different direction this morning. It's not his first coming that I want us to focus on, but rather his second coming. Now, that may seem a bit strange to you to begin a Christmas season with, and when we start thinking about the coming of the baby Jesus, but it's not really that strange because as we identify with the people in the Christmas story who were waiting for their Messiah to come and restore God's kingdom to earth, we too are waiting. We're waiting for the Messiah to return in the clouds of glory to take us back to God where we'll be with him forever. So on the one hand, we're looking forward, we're looking backward, excuse me, at the birth of Christ as God became flesh and dwelt among us and that baby the son of God changed the world as he taught us about the kingdom of God and how we can be a part of it. But we're also looking forward in anticipation of his next return when he's going to appear on the clouds of heaven, as the Bible says, with power and great glory, and with the loud trumpet call, he's going to send his angels who, were get, who will, as Matthew terms it, gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And I don't know about you, but I plan on being a part of that elect, amen? I'm going to be. Go with me to Matthew chapter number 24, if you would, please. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'll read a, a large portion of Matthew 25 here in a bit. But in Matthew chapter number 24, we find Jesus' disciples asking Jesus some very, very difficult questions. You'll find in verse number 3 that while Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us. When will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I'm going to stop there and just tell you the rest of the story. Jesus answered them and told them about the signs which would occur before his return. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. And that's just the beginning. Jesus says, then there's going to be this tribulation and persecution is going to come to Christians. And then he talks about this thing called the abomination of desolation in the holy place. People having to flee into the mountains. Now, I know that maybe some of you would like to hear more about these events and perhaps even hear my opinions as to how this is going to happen. But I'm going to be honest with you, you're not going to get all of that today. Because, not because I... I think it's a waste of time, but because I want to talk to you about the importance of Jesus' answer. Jesus wasn't letting them know what was going to take place because he wanted them to learn all of these things. He was letting them know because he wanted them to be ready. That's the message that we need this morning. We need to understand that whenever it happens, we need to be ready. We're fascinated by all of this stuff that Jesus tells them is going to happen. We're fascinated for the same reasons that people love to buy the National Enquirer uh, when they go to the grocery store. Why? Because inquiring minds want to know. 
We have to understand, however, that Jesus didn't tell his disciples about these events so that they could spend their time speculating, creating these complicated timelines and graphs and interpreting the newspaper through prophetic lens, as so many people seem to enjoy doing. When Jesus had finished talking about the signs of his return, he said to them most importantly in verses 42 through 44, the reasons why he was telling them about these things. He says there, therefore, be alert, since you do not know what day your Lord is coming. And then you move down to verse number 44 and you see that Jesus adds this. This is why you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So my point in this entire message this morning is watchfulness and readiness. He wants us to be attentive to what's going on in the world not to get caught up in making all these random speculations such as, the per- as who the person is, for example, that's going to be the Antichrist. <laughs> I, I, I remember as a child growing up in the church that I grew up in, and I remember people talking about this person of the Antichrist that will appear toward the end of the age as Jesus talks about. Now understand, the spirit of Antichrist is already here in the world. But there's going to be this person that is going to come that will fulfill the, the role, if you will, of the Antichrist. And I can remember as a, as a young boy hearing people in my church speculate about who the Antichrist was. At that particular time, it happened to be a guy named Nikita Khrushchev, the ruler of Russia. Years later, I was going to Bible college in Springfield, Missouri. And we had chapel services every morning, and you had to be there. And I remember one such chapel service. They, the speaker was a, 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 a man who had done a lot of study on these end-time prophecies. And somebody gave a message in tongues. And the same person decided that he was called upon to interpret the message. And his interpretation, long story short said that Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of State of our country at that time, was the Antichrist. How awful. How how awful to, to do something under the pretense that the Holy Spirit is speaking through you and to do something like that. I have books in my office interestingly enough, by well-respected Christian authors speculating that Jesus is going to return before Y2K. How many of you remember Y2K, the year 2000? An entire book written on how the Lord had revealed to him that Jesus' return was going to take place before 2000. How'd that work out? I have another book in my office speculating that John F. Kennedy's assassination was the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Each of those written with the suggestion that God had given them this prophetic word. Now, I'm sure you can see the problem with all of that. I get amused when 
when I go to the checkout stand at Dillon's or Walmart and I see these what I call wannabe newspapers that are actually called tabloids with stories about how someone has received a word of prophetic knowledge concerning when the end of the world as we know it is going to take place. Apparently, even the unbelieving world has a craving for this kind of speculation. But Jesus makes it very clear. Matthew chapters 24 and 25, he doesn't want us to speculate. He just wants us to be ready. Because it could happen at any time. So what does it mean when I say, be ready? What What all does that word, that small five-letter word entail when it comes to being ready for Jesus' second uh, second coming? How do we get ready? What does Jesus want us to be doing? Well, go with me now to Matthew 25, and I know it's a long chapter, but I want you to hear three parables that... I'm going to be describing in detail here in just a moment, and I'll take them in the order in which they come. Jesus is speaking, and he says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish, and five were sensible. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the sensible ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. Since the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, here's the groom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps, but the foolish ones said to the sensible ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The sensible ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell and buy oil for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived Then those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. But he replied, I assure you, I do not know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. This is a parable about taking care of our spiritual condition. Jesus gives the picture of a wedding as he often does. He, I think he really enjoyed using the illustration of a wedding to, to tell parables that had deep meaning. You see, in Jesus' day, bridesmaids would go out to meet the groom in the evening. And they would escort the groom via torchlight to the home of the bride who would then go together to the groom's father's house for the wedding ceremony and the, the accompanying festivities that followed. And in Jesus' parable, five of these bridesmaids, or as the, our scripture passage said, virgins went out prepared with extra oil in their lamps because they knew that they might have to wait on the groom. The procession could go well into the night, and the other five bridesmaids, on the other hand, they were on the other hand, they were foolish and didn't bring any extra oil with them. So, 
All ten of the bridesmaids go out to meet the groom. But he didn't arrive when they expected him to. And so the ones who forgot to bring extra oil ran out of oil and had to go purchase some more. And while they were away, the groom arrives. And they head off to the wedding feast together, minus five of the bridesmaids. Now again... It seems as if Jesus loves to use the analogy of a wedding feast when he's referring to the kingdom of God. We know that Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. He's the one that we, the church, the bride of Christ, are waiting for. We are waiting for our groom to arrive. And when he returns, he's going to gather his people who are prepared in a great procession going to a wedding feast, which is heaven. Now, we don't know when the groom is going to arrive. So the point of Jesus' in, uh, parable is making sure we are spiritually ready for that arrival. The oil is a symbol of, of God's Holy Spirit and represents our spiritual condition, our, our relationship with God, which clearly in this story is our responsibility. Let me tell you something, friends. This is the whole point that I want to make. Your spiritual condition and mine is our responsibility. God has given us the means by which to take care of our spiritual condition. But if we don't utilize the means by which he has given us, we are running a great danger of missing the groom when he comes. So we have to take care of our spiritual condition. God's already done his part. He's offered us that grace that we talked about a while ago through Jesus uh, for the journey. He's promised to us the fullness of his spirit. I've heard it said that this was a parable about unbelievers getting right with God. But I don't think so. I think Jesus is addressing those of us who believe. That's why all ten bridesmaids, they began their journey with the oil that they needed. That is, they had the Spirit, they had a relationship with God, but apparently they didn't prepare for what might be a long wait. Now, how many of you would say that you have heard this, what I'm getting ready to say, that you... You've heard all your life that Jesus is, is going to come soon. I've heard that from the, as early as I can remember. Jesus is getting ready to come. Well, now it's 60-some years later. It's been a while. But you know what that means? It's just 60-some years closer. I still believe he's getting ready to return. I believe it could be at any moment. But I also understand that I have to have my spiritual condition prepared for whenever that might be. He tells us in another place he's going to come like a thief in the night, unexpectedly. So I can't, I can't take the chance of not being spiritually ready for his return. They had the oil, they had this, a relationship with God, but they didn't prepare for the long wait. You know why? Because they, like the disciples in Matthew 24, they were thinking, well, he's going to come back right away. 
He's not going to be gone very long. There's no need to prepare for the long haul. Jesus is, he's going to come back right away. Now think about it for them. It's been over 2,000 years. 2,000 years have gone by. The five bridesmaids in this story didn't bring enough oil to last them until the groom came. In other words, their spiritual life in Christ Jesus wasn't very deep. And as time passed, their spiritual light, so to speak, began to fizzle. They may have repented. They may have turned to Jesus once upon a time. They may have been baptized a whole bit, but nothing, something was wrong. Either something didn't take root after that, or there was no ongoing relationship with Jesus. No filling of the Spirit, as I prefer to think of it. I, I got to tell I got to just stop and interject this right here. I need the Holy Spirit in my life. I need to be full of the Holy Spirit in my life. In order to make my spiritual condition what it needs to be to be ready for the groom's return. With everything that's going on in this world, I can't do it on my own. I have to have the Spirit of God as my oil to keep my light burning. And I just have a feeling the rest of you need the same thing. Now, the reason I believe that this parable is so significant is because Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples of that day and us today for some tough times that lay ahead. His disciples, as I said, were thinking that that Jesus would return right right away and it would be done and God's kingdom then would be quickly established. But Jesus, I believe, in this parable was preparing them for what could be a very long wait. He wanted them to know that the closer the time came to his return, the more persecution they and us as his followers were going to experience. He wanted them and he wants us to be prepared for things like false teaching. People who are false prophets who speculate and then their speculations don't come to pass. He wants us to be prepared for them because those people are trying to lead us astray. Friends, if we are not prepared, we can easily become the the prey or the casualties, if you will, of false teachers and their teaching. We have to know the truth. And recognize the voice of the good shepherd. These five bridesmaids who weren't prepared with with extra oil, they weren't firmly grounded in Christ. Had they been, their oil supply would not have been too low. The time of persecution Jesus referred to would begin soon. For us, are we grounded enough in Christ to know and to be able to distinguish truth versus falsehood? Jesus wants us to focus on our spiritual condition so that we grow deeper in Him every day that we live. To know the truth and to be able to distinguish it from those who would seek to lead us otherwise. And then we move to the second parable. And it begins 
where was I? In, in verse number 14. Jesus says it's like a man going on a journey. He called his own slaves and turned over his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went and put them to work and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Then the man with two talents also approached. He said, master, you gave me two talents. Look, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Then the man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went off and hid your talent in the ground, and look, you have what is yours. But his master replied to him, You evil lazy slave. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And when I returned, I would have received my money back with interest from Charlotte. I, I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. Just seeing if you're listening. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will now be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing slave into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The second thing that we need to do in addition to taking care of our spiritual condition is that we need to use whatever God has given us for His kingdom. Jesus takes this analogy one step further here. He began with our inner spiritual life and now He's moving to what I call our outer spiritual life. He compares the return to his return to a master who gave three servants money to manage while he goes away on a trip. First is given five talents. Now, for those of you that want to know, a talent was a, was a unit of money. The second he gave two talents, and the third one, each according to their abilities. For example, he knew that the one with five talents or five abilities uh, could be trusted with more, so he gave him more. The ones, both the ones who received the five and the two, what'd they do? They put what they had to work immediately, just like their master would have done if he were there in their place. 
Did you catch that? Using what the master would have done if he were there in their place. In other words, he's entrusting them to do his work in his absence. Wow. They soon doubled what they'd been given. But on the other hand, there's the one who only received one talent. He's fearful of the master, so he goes and digs a hole in the ground and puts the money in it for safekeeping. He thought that to be the safest thing to do with what he'd been given. Well, the master returns. The three servants presented their money. The one who'd been given five returned ten. The one who'd been given two returned four. And both of them were praised for their faithfulness in doing what God had given them to do with. Their master said, well done. (laughs) You're faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you in charge of many things. But then we come to that servant with the one talent. What did he do? He goes and digs it up and brings the one talent that he'd been given back to the master intact. And we find that the master rebukes him, calling him evil and lazy for not doing anything with what had been given him. He takes it away from it and gives it to the one with the tin. And he said, throw this good-for-nothing slave out into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, the point of this parable was that God has given each of us something. We're given resources. We're given abilities. We're given talents. We're given time. We're given money. We are given connections. We are given influence in certain areas with certain people. Some are given more, others less, based on their abilities and their faithfulness to use those abilities. But while we are waiting for Jesus and his kingdom to come, we prepare ourselves, we get ourselves ready by using the resources that we are given in the way that Christ wants us to use them or the way that Jesus himself would use them if he were here in our place. Boy, that's, that's a pretty amazing statement. Maybe that's why Jesus said, greater things than these that I do, you shall do because I go to the Father. And when I go to the Father, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And He will enable you to do great and mighty things. I said He would enable you. I didn't say He was going to force you to do great and mighty things. He's going to enable you to do them, but it is your responsibility and mine to use what's been given us to do what God would have us to do. You see, friends, one day Jesus is going to return, and we're going to be brought before Him to give an account of how we have used what God has given us. So think about it this way. 
if we are God's investment, along with all the resources that he's given us, what kind of return are you going to give God on his investment? How much of a Christ-like impact is your life going to make on other people? How much kingdom work will we do before his return or our death, whichever comes first? Or are we like the third slave, making excuses for not using our resources in the way that God would have us use them? Are we complaining, perhaps, that we don't have the ability to do what God wants us to do? Wrong. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1? I like the way the New Living Translation gives us verse 7. The New Living Translation says it this way, Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us have everything that we need to use what God has given us for kingdom purposes. Can I just break that down for you for a minute? We can't argue that we don't have the time. We can't argue that we don't have the money. We can't argue that we don't have the gifts or the abilities to do what God wants us to do because God says, I've already given it to you. Everything that you need to prepare you for the return of Jesus. Now, we may not be aware that we have everything we need, but that's where faith comes in. This is the most important part of this message, by the way. Do you have faith that God will take whatever you have and use it to accomplish His divine purposes? I look at myself and I think, man, you see, this was, what I'm doing up here this morning, this wasn't the plan. The plan was to go around the country singing. That's what I was going to give God of what I could do. I loved singing. I loved being able to perform. And so, God, I'm going to give myself to you. And this is the way you're going to use me. Now, now God, if you have this idea anywhere that someday I'm going to be a pastor and a preacher... That's not the plan, God. I'll never forget the first time I was called to preach. It was at a little American Baptist church up here in Lakin, Kansas. I'd sung there on several occasions, and they lost their pastor, and they didn't have anybody to fill in for their pastor, and so they call me. I'm still on the farm. And they said, Terry, would you come preach for us Sunday? And I said, I don't preach. I, I sing, and you've already heard me several times do that. Well, we just feel like you need to come and fill in for us. They kept just dinging me and dinging me and dinging me. And finally, I just said, okay, I'll come and I'll do something. Preaching wasn't at the top of my list, so I... 
sat down one evening about three nights before the first Sunday, and I wrote this sermon. And if I took my time, it would have lasted three minutes. And so I go on Sunday, and I have this little one page of notes. I'm scared to death. And the song leader is singing, finishing the congregational singing, and I'm thinking, oh, man, what am I going to do? And he turns and introduces me to be the speaker for that Sunday. And they had this big wooden pulpit about this size. I'm glad it was wooden because you couldn't see me doing this behind it. Literally shaking in my shoes. I'll never forget the sensation. I walked up to the pulpit and I put my hands on it like this. And it was as if the Spirit of God said to me, this is what I've prepared you for. And by and large, I've been behind that pulpit every day since that Sunday. I became the interim pastor for an American Baptist church for nine months. And God took me from that to the church that split off of my home church that I said I would never set foot in. Don't ever tell God you'll never do something. I became the interim pastor at that church for another nine months until God called me to full-time ministry and miraculously set me free from the farm, called me to a little church in Rowlett, Texas, October 4th, 1992, and I've been doing this ever since. You know how? Nothing short of incredible faith. I'm not a public speaker, but by faith, God has enabled me to do with what he has given me in ways that I could have never done on my own. It's a matter of utilizing faith in what God has given you. A.W. Tozer, the great Bible theologian, said that this way. He said, God takes men of great talent and ability and crushes them. Crushes them. So that whatever he does with them will be as a result of his doing and not theirs. No excuses when we stand before God. You see, when Jesus returns, he's going to bring us before the throne of God. And he's going to ask us one question. What have you done with what I've given you? Are we putting our resources, what God has given us, to work for his kingdom? Or are we burying them? I have to hurry on. The third thing, and this won't take near as long, I promise, begins in verse number 31. When the Son of Man comes in all of His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me and I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And you skip down to the last verse of the chapter, it says, They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is not so much a parable that Jesus uses here as it is an illustration of what's going to happen when Jesus returns to judge the nations. He says he's going to gather everyone before him and they'll be separated just like a shepherd separates his flock of sheep and goats. The king will place the sheep on his right side, the goats on his left. Those at the right hand will inherit eternal life in heaven. Those on the left will go away to eternal punishment. Now, there is one distinguishing factor which Jesus uses to separate the sheep from the goats, and it's this. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. The distinguishing factor, the readiness factor, as I like to refer to it, for when Christ returns, are our acts of compassion and mercy toward others. Now, I, want, I, I tried to emphasize in the reading of that from the Scripture, Jesus said, whenever you've done it unto the least of these, my brothers. That's a very important word. Because he's wanting to emphasize particularly other Christians who are in need. What he's saying in all of this, friends, is we are to be the hands and the feet of Christ for one another. How are we using the resources. What are we spo- how are we supposed to use those resources that we've been given? Now, we all agree this morning that it's not by our works that we're saved. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, right? But Jesus reflects that our faith must be reflected in our acts toward the least of these. If our faith is not expressed in good deeds or in acts of love for other people, 
What good is our faith? And that's not a statement coming from your pastor. That's what the Word of God says. Faith without works is dead. Some time ago, I remember seeing this television commercial about a, an upcoming television show in which some of the richest people in the world would give up their lavish lifestyle, their sprawling mansions and private planes, and they would go dress up as ordinary folks living undercover in America, some of America's poorest neighborhoods working for minimum wage in order to survive the challenges of everyday life. That was going to be what the television show was about. I think they called it Undercover Boss. I, I've never watched it. I'm not sure how that works with a whole camera crew following them around, but anyway, that's not the point. But they would be working side by side with what we call blue-collar folks. Giving away some of their wealth to some of those everyday heroes is the way the show would end each time. And they would give it to people who treated them and others with kindness, without the expectation of anything in return. It was, to me, kind of as it was described in that commercial, kind of their way of finding people who are the real deal, those who walk what they talk and not just squawk. I mention that because... To me, that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus, who gave up the luxury of heaven to come and to live just like one of us in our lowly state here on this earth. And Jesus, in this illustration, reminds me of that when he says, what you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. Friends, our reward for our faith is not going to be what you do in public for everyone to see. The reward for our faith is what we do in private that never gets noticed by anyone else. But Jesus is watching it. He's observing that if we care for the least, we are doing it as if we were doing it to him himself. I know that's not good English, but you get the point. We were doing it for him. Now, getting back to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, as we wait for Jesus' return, he said, you've been given every spiritual resource that you need to do the will of God in your life. God's goodness, back to our sermon series, God's goodness is seen in his faithfulness to give us what we need to accomplish his plans and purposes. So then our only responsibility is to incorporate the faith to put it into action. Now that's a big stumbling block. We've been given it, but are we going to use it for God's purposes? And if you're like me, I've heard a lot of excuses. Well, I've put in my time. Or I'm retired. Let somebody else do it. Well, let me just shuck right down to the cob here for a moment. Has God given you the ability, for example, to work with children? 
Are you blessed with the talent to sing, to write, to teach, to cook, to parent, to have the wherewithal to go places where the gospel hasn't yet gone? Are you blessed with leadership abilities? Are you blessed with organizational skills? Are you blessed with the ability to speak? Oh, are you blessed with the ability to listen? An intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ can take any or all of those abilities, add the power and the enablement, we like to refer to it as the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and you can accomplish amazing things for the kingdom. Yes, even you. Even me. Once you've given yourself to kingdom purposes, here's the best part. And this is the message of the first Sunday of Advent. You can eagerly hope for and experience the blessed hope of His return. I got to tell you something, friends. There have been periods in my life when I laid my head down on a pillow to go to sleep at night. When I wasn't convinced that if I didn't wake up to see the next sunrise or if Jesus came in the clouds of glory that I'd be at home with him. It was a terrible feeling. But the other side of that coin is there is nothing like being able to lay your head on your pillow knowing that if your next breath is the last or the trumpet sound wakes you from your sleep, your next breath is going to be heavenly air. There is nothing in this world like that assurance. And Jesus has given us the hope that that can be said of each and every one of us every day. Worship team, would you come please? You see, if that speaks of you, you won't be concerned. You won't feel the need to speculate on when it will happen or how. (laughs) Somebody used to say to me, well, which do you want? Do you want to, to die before Jesus comes or do you want to experience He's coming? And I said, well, you know, the dead go first. What I'm saying to you is it doesn't matter to me. What matters is that whether by the grave or by the clouds, I'm ready to meet Jesus. And I want that for each and every one of us. The speculation as to when or how won't matter because our focus is on the preparation to be ready. And this Christmas season, as we wait for Christ to return the second time, it's a good, a good opportunity for us to remind ourselves that this first Advent Sunday is about hope, hope of His appearing. We, we no longer have to hope that a Savior will come to save us. He's already done that. Our hope is now that He will find us faithful 
when he returns as he's been faithful to us. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, just a couple of questions. First and most importantly, are you ready? Is your spiritual condition, your relationship with Jesus such that if the angels of glory blow that trumpet here in the next few seconds, you have no doubt whatsoever that you'll be part of his elect that's being called home. How is your outward spiritual condition? Are you using what God has given you as if it were him here in your place? And lastly, how are you using it? Are you caring for and helping other people? Dear Jesus, this morning, you know the heart and you know the condition of every person in this room. You know, God, even at this very moment, you know which ones of us are ready to meet you and which ones are not. You know, God, which ones of us have exercised faith to use the resources that you've given to each of us to accomplish your purposes, and you know which ones are not. And Lord, I believe that your goal in laying this message upon my heart as you have is to give us not only the assurance that we're ready to meet you, but the hope that we can do significant things for your kingdom. We may not have confidence in ourselves. We may not have a good self-esteem. We may think that we're not talented enough, not good enough. And we aren't in our own strength. But you've not only given us the resources, you've given us your Holy Spirit to empower us and enable us to do what you need done. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, we're getting ready to sing a song. We sang it earlier. It says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. I can't speak for anyone else in this room, but I have a lot of education. Education won't do it for you. Many of you, like myself, have had a lot of experiences. They're helpful, but they won't do it for you. The only thing that will enable you to use what God has given you to use is the power of His Holy Spirit anointing you, enabling you, empowering you, whatever you want to call it, to take what has been given you and use it for His kingdom. I want us to stand to our feet this morning, and as we sing this song, 
I want you to just make a statement to Jesus. Jesus, it's in you alone that I find my hope. I'm confessing to you, Jesus, that I, I, I don't feel like I have much, but whatever I have, I give it to you to use as you see fit to accomplish your plans and purposes here in this life. Let's sing it together. It's the Lord.